Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. That's right. If you're anything like Bill and Fleur, you want to get a extremely haggard and (laughs) sickly Mr. Ollivander out of the cottage as quickly as possible so you can get back to doing what you guys do best. Now, if you don't want to hear discussions of that kind, why don't you check out one of the other great podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network, like The Big Picture, Sean Fennessy. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're sending an owl to the ministry to ask for a copy of Vernon Dudley's CV, which the Snatchers never did, by the way, no. please proceed with extreme caution. And now, Binge Mode. The tiny elf trotted into the room, his shaking finger pointing at his old mistress. You must not hurt Harry Potter! He squeaked. Kill him, sissy! Shrieked Bellatrix, but there was another loud crack, and Narcissa's wand too flew into the air and landed on the other side of the room. You dirty little monkey! Bawled Bellatrix. How dare you take a witch's wand! How dare you defy your masters! Dobby has no master! Squealed the elf. Dobby is a free elf! And Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends! Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes. On the Ringer Podcast Network. What a wonderful place. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, it's a great website. Sure is. Joining me today, now that he's finished unscrewing a very precariously placed chandelier, it's Ringer Senior Creative, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal, you must not hurt Harry Potter! Or Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Where there are not, Lupin named you Godfather. Which, wow, man. Beautiful moment. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, rate and review us. Five points and stars for Binge Mode. Feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place to strategize a Gringotts break-in. Please go ahead and head over to theringer.com slash shop to check out our new binge mode merch. Ideal for a stay at a seaside cottage. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how symbols shape chapters 20 through 22 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on huh? today's episode, we're diving into chapters 23 through 25. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and ten films, yes, ten, including the new Fantastic Beast movie and the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series into account from Ugh. the moment Snatchers find our glasses. That's right. So hide your scar and your deluminator too, because it's time to head to Malfoy Manor. Mal, hmm. stop. Do not touch the plot points. We shall all perish if Isaac comes now. Once it's safe, though, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallow's chapters 23 to 25 by climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine to plot the Hogwarts Express choo-choo. 
The Snatchers strike and capture Harry, Ron, and Hermione, taking them along with Dean Thomas and Gripbook to Malfoy Manor. All but Hermione are sent to the cellar, where they find the imprisoned Mr. Ollivander and Luna. In desperation, with Hermione being tortured upstairs, Harry looks into the shard of mirror, sees a blue eye, and calls for help. It arrives in the form of Dobby, who helps them escape, although Peter Pettigrew dies in the process. Rat squeaks! <laughs> for Wormtail! <laughs> and then, tragically, Bellatrix kills Dobby just as the group disapparates. The loudest Phoenix yes. song we've ever had for the Dobster. A free and wonderful elf. A free elf! At Shell Cottage, a.k.a. the Fuck Shack, <laughs> Harry learns about the Elder Wand from Ollivander just as he sees Voldemort take it by breaking into Dumbledore's tomb at Hogwarts. And he learns that Draco Malfoy's wand, which he had wrestled away in the escape, might have changed its allegiance. Then Harry, Ron, and Hermione make plans with Griphook to invade the Lestrange's vault at Gringotts, where they suspect another Horcrux is hidden. Jason. Yes. Am I meant to know, but not to pod? Did you know how hard I'd find that? Is that why you made it this difficult? And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme in chapters 23 through 25 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is... Big one, folks. Big one. Choice. Chapter 23, Malfoy Manor. Immediately, Hermione points her wand, not at the approaching foes drawn forth by Harry's utterance of Voldemort's name, but at Harry's face. There's no time or chance to pack up and escape, and she knows that. The protections are breached, the enemies are at the door or tent flap, and all they can do is hope to evade full detection. As Hermione's spell reaches him, Harry feels his face swell. Get up, vermin! He hears as unfamiliar hands lift him up, grab the blackthorn wand from his pocket. He can barely see his skin stretched tight over his now swollen face. And his glasses knocked off for good measure. Ron and Hermione are shouting out in defense of each other. Get off her! Leave him alone! Leave him alone! A, quote, horribly familiar rasping voice meets Hermione's cries with a response. Delicious girl, what a treat. I do enjoy the softness of the skin. Well, that was horrifying yeah. to hear. <laughs> and the sickening truth hits Harry like the smell of blood on the werewolf's whiskers once did its Fenrir Greyback. The monster who bit Lupin as a boy mauled Bill Weasley last year and pledges his allegiance to Voldemort in exchange for free reign to defy law and nature alike by savaging at will, devouring human flesh, even outside the full moon. The assailants push Harry and Ron to the ground and search the tent, then proceed to attempt to identify their catch. Greyback rolls Harry onto his back and laughs. I'll be needing butterbeer to wash this one down. I guess butterbeer goes well with the human flesh. That's wonderful to know. Strange pairing. What happened to you, ugly? Harry receives a painful kick as he fails to immediately answer, then scrounges for a cover story. He was stung, he says, and his name is uh, uh, Dudley, Vernon Dudley. Recall what Ron recently told Harry about his interactions with the Snatchers and his assessment of Xenophilius' story. It's hard to make up a lie from whole cloth under stress. Better to stick to something or someone you'd know. Ron went with Stan, Stan Shunpike. Harry, quite intriguingly, goes with an amalgamation of his cousin and uncle. Names widely enough associated with Harry that the Dursleys had to go into hiding, and yet names that on some base. Lily and Petunia Forge, Dumbledore-aided blood-deep level, 
have meant safety. Mm-hmm. It's a fiction based in reality, little drummer girl style. Check the list. Greyback tells one of his goons before moving on to Ron, who sticks with the Stan Shunpike lie. But most unfortunately for our guy, these snatchers know good old Stan, who maybe should have been blasted from the sky after all. Like hell you are, said the man called Scabbier. We know Stan Shunpike. He's put a bit of work our way. Well, <laughs> tough look for our guy Stan Shunpike and the theory that Stan Shunpike was operating under the Imperius curse. <laughs> Perhaps he put work their way because he was under the <laughs> Although, why wouldn't they say, you're not Stan Shunpike, he's imperious <laughs> and has been doing stuff for us? It's a reasonable question. Yeah. It's not a great look for Stan. Or Harry, who's been <laughs> Stan's most ardent defender out in these streets. Redemption for Rufus Scrimgeour at last? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ron has to stick with his own advice. A lie based in truth. So mouth full of blood after another blow, he says he's Barney Weasley, using the identity that Harry assumed at Bill and Floor's wedding. And Greyback is delighted. For the purposes of their search, the next best thing to a mudblood is a blood traitor. And lastly, Greyback says, your pretty little friend. The relish in his voice made Harry's flesh crawl. Hermione says that she's Penelope Clearwater, a half-blood. Long ago, remember, Penelope and Hermione were linked in a desperate moment of terror, petrified, together, by the basilisk while returning from the library. At this point, Scabier observes that they all appear to be Hogwarts age, and there's something about this reminder of how very young Harry, Ron, and Hermione still look, how very young they are, that reinforces the magnitude of their mission and the bravery that they display every moment. They not only walk forward, but don't walk backward, don't walk away. Their captors broach saying the Dark Lord's name, asking if they were having a laugh, and then noting that the Order of the Phoenix used to speak it freely. Mean anything to you? Greyback asks. They tie up the trio with other prisoners, and once fastened to his friends, Harry asks if either of them still has a wand. They don't. This is all my fault, he says. I said the name. I'm sorry. And as he speaks, someone answers, but it's not Ron or Hermione. Harry? Dean? (laughs) Dean Thomas? is tied to Hermione. He's alive. The Snatchers, meanwhile, have checked their list of names, but they can't find any Vernon Dudley on there. Greyback, reeking of blood, sweat, and filth, asks what house Vernon was in. Slytherin, said Harry automatically. This is all deliberate. Fast action meant to craft a house of cards just stable enough to survive a huff of Greyback's foul breath. Quote, funny how they all think we wants to hear that, jeered Scabier out of the shadows but none of them can tell us where the common room is. Aha! But Harry can. He's been there during his second year when he and Ron imbibed Polyjuice Potion and entered the common room to interrogate Draco Malfoy about the heir of Slytherin. Harry describes it convincingly. Quote, it's full of skulls and stuff. (laughs) 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 Who could doubt that extremely precise account? Now he just joking. <laughs> Not a lot of jokes in this stretch of chapters. He has other details, too. And then old Scabier congratulates Vernon on passing this test, noting that there aren't very many mudblood Slytherins, he says, and then asking who Vernon's father is. Harry continues to craft the fiction, saying that he works in the ministry. And this is a strange choice. Mm-hmm. Quote, he knew that this whole story would collapse with the smallest investigation. Yes, Harry, my boy. But the investigation takes even less time if you say your dad works at the place currently employing 
the people torturing you. (laughs) Amazingly, however, Harry pulls the Department of Magical Accidents and Catastrophes out of the mokeskin pouch embedded in his ass. And Scabier says that he's pretty sure that there is a Dudley in that branch after all. Extremely Voldemort and Goblet of Fire voice. Now see the way that fate favors Harry Potter. Harry's heart is pounding so fast that he thinks it wouldn't surprise him to know that Greyback could see his ribs pulsing, just as he allows himself to wonder whether sheer luck and, of course, his navigation of the circumstances could get them out of this mess. The bad breaks start coming. First, one of the Snatchers emerges from the tent with Gryffindor's sword, which Greyback, despite not recognizing its exact identity, immediately sees as high quality and goblin-made. We'll see later in this stretch of chapters as Harry negotiates his alliance with Griphook how paramount the sword is. Without it, they believe they'll be lost in the Horcrux hunt, immediately again unclear how to proceed in their effort to rid the world of the casings for Voldemort's soul. If they escape the Snatchers but lose the sword, what hope will they have? Just as Harry is praying that Greyback can't see the name etched on the sword, Scabrier finds something else, a daily profit clipping. Before we hear what the clipping shows, Harry's scar burns and he sees a towering, forbidding fortress. Nurmengard will soon realize. Voldemort is flying towards it. Since learning about the Hallows, Harry, recall, has been desperate for more insight into Voldemort's mind so that he can gain intel on the Elder Wand hunt. Confirm that certainty that he already feels about the source of Voldemort's desire. And by extension, confirm his own certainty about the wide Hallows lore. But as the recent hazy visions give way at last to crystal clear insights, Harry has to look away. His survival, Ron and Hermione's survival, the future of the Horcrux hunt and the battle against Voldemort all depend on making it out of this moment alive. He has to be present. He wills his focus back to where they sit, tied and waiting, to where Scabier is reading a line from the paper aloud, a line about Hermione Granger, the quote, mudblood who is known to be traveling with Harry Potter. Greyback crouches in front of Hermione for a closer look. You know what, little girly? This picture looks a hell of a lot like you. Shit. Hermione swears it isn't her, but, quote, Hermione's terrified squeak was as good as a confession. Greyback reads over the line about Hermione and Harry, known travel companions. Harry is trying fiercely to stay in the present. Quote, it had never been so important to remain in his own right mind. Greyback now crouches in front of Harry, clearly thinking hard, and as his stench fills Harry's nostrils, he touches Harry's scar. What's that on your forehead, Vernon? He asks. Don't touch it, Harry shouts. The pain is unbearable to him. And Greyback is not fooled any longer. I thought you wore glasses, Potter, he says. That's a terrifying moment. And one of the Snatchers, giddy with delight, says, I I found some glasses in the tent. They grab them, shove them onto Harry's swollen face, and gaze upon their bounty. It is, rasped Greyback. We've caught Potter. The pain in Harry's scar is so intense that despite the horror of what's unfolding in front of him, he can't keep the visions at bay. He alternates between his present hell and glimpses of Voldemort approaching the fortress, oscillating between the horror of what is and what could soon be. And now, Greyback has a choice to make, too. To the Ministry, one of his goons asks. To hell with the Ministry, he rasps. He wants the credit for finding Harry. He wants Voldemort to shower him with glory, but that means going to Voldemort directly. Yet Greyback does not have a dark mark. He isn't really a Death Eater, isn't really an Inner Circle member. He's a hired dog, a hired wolf, wearing Death Eater robes and occasionally running in Death Eater circles like atop the tower at Hogwarts last school year, but he hasn't been fully knighted, fully sanctioned. He decides to take them to Malfoy Manor, which he knows Voldemort is using as a base. If they're wrong about Harry being Harry, they're dead. Who's in charge here? 
Greyback says. He's chasing the gold, noting it's 200,000 galleons for Harry and his wand. And also clearly chasing the full acceptance that might come from presenting Voldemort yeah. with this kind of prize. It's worth the risk to him because the gain is a kind of freedom and a new kind of honor that he's never had. As this all plays out, Harry's proving unable to block out Voldemort's mind. He now sees a slit in the window atop the tallest tower and through that, a quote, skeletal figure. He pulls himself back to hear Greyback announce that they'll be taking the whole lot of prisoners with them, plus the ruby-encrusted sword to collect whatever additional prize money they can. Harry can feel Greyback's nails scratching his scalp as he lifts him. Any contamination concerns from this? Like a werewolf contamination concerns? The Snatchers disapparate with their prey, Harry trying to throw himself off from the group. Splinching risk and seeing a flash of Voldemort slithering into the cell. Both he and Voldemort are entering prisons in a way. They arrive outside the gates of Malfoy Manor, and Harry's briefly relieved to know that Voldemort isn't there yet. He won't be relieved for long. The Snatchers can't get through the gate. Contrasting for the readers who saw the iron melt into smoke at Snape and Yaxley's approach, the relative unimportance of these captors. As they're permitted to enter the manor, Harry gives into the pain in his scar for a moment. It's a balance. He needs to stay fully focused on the hell they're walking into, but he also needs to know how close the devil is. Sneaking a peek at Voldemort will allow Harry to see when he's heading back. And as he looks through Voldemort's eyes, he witnesses an exchange of incomparable magnitude. The skeleton-like figure with a face like a skull rolls over, looks at Voldemort and smiles. So you come. I thought you would one day, but your journey was pointless. I never had it. Mm. You lie. Chills. We'll soon realize that this is Grindelwald, infamous Stark wizard, who after losing the, quote, duel of legend, heavy air quotes per Rita's request, lived the rest of his years in Nurmengard, the fortress in which he imprisoned his enemies. Clearly, he's been waiting for Voldemort's appearance, and he knows without even asking why Voldemort is here, the Elder Wand, the wand that the merry-faced thief Grindelwald took from Grigorovich, the wand that Dumbledore will tell Harry he won from his boyhood friend when he confronted him at last. I never had it has always been a notable line. In King's Cross, Harry will share this information with Dumbledore, telling him that Grindelwald tried to stop Voldemort from learning that Dumbledore had the wand. But in light of the role Wandlore plays in the story and the role the Elder Wand has or notably has not played in the Fantastic Beast movies, and spoiler warning here if you haven't seen Beast 2, the shot we saw in the mirror of Erised of Dumbledore, not Grindelwald, maybe holding the Elder Wand as a young man, not clarified in the screenplay. Notably, we have to wonder if there's more literal interpretation behind these words. More on this in our Beast pods and in the future, undoubtedly. Harry's focus returns to his present surroundings, where Narcissa Malfoy has emerged to greet the group but not kindly, demanding to know who they are. This sits as well with Greyback as a welcome mat made of silver bullets would. You know me, he shouts, clearly aggrieved. He presents the swollen Harry, the terrified Hermione, and what he thinks is Harry's wand to gain entrance. And Narcissa leads them in, leads them toward Draco, who's home for the Easter holidays. Really astonishing that he went back to school, by the way. No safer place. If that is Harry Potter, Narcissa says, he will know, meaning Draco. Harry's panic rises as Lucius Malfoy's voice reaches him. What is this? And Harry's having an easier time blocking out Voldemort's thoughts now because his terror is supreme. It's no longer a choice. It's just base instinct, chemical. Quote, he could see no way out. Narcissa summons Draco and Harry resists the urge to look him in the eye. But when Greyback repositions him, he sees his own reflection in a mirror. And it's the first time he's seen himself in a mirror since Grimwald Place. Think about that, how long it's been since he's just done such a human, simple thing. His hair is shoulder length. 
Goblet of Fire style, maybe? Yeah. His jawline dark with scruff. Quote, had he not known that it was he who stood there, he would have wondered who was wearing his glasses. This is existentially unsettling, certainly. Harry transformed beyond just the stinging jinx in every way by his experience, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. But practically in this moment, it's a gift. I can't, I can't be sure, Draco says, in reply to his father's query. And Harry observes that Draco is keeping far away from Greyback, whose presence atop the tower in Half-Blood Prince, recall, horrified him. He, quote, seemed as scared of looking at Harry as Harry was of looking at him. Lucius demands that his son take a closer look. He is euphoric at the prospect of being able to hand Harry to the Dark Lord and digging out of the gutter that his failures landed him in. Greyback, of course, isn't so keen on Lucius's transparent desire to take credit for Harry's capture. We won't be forgetting who actually caught him, I hope, Greyback says. And Lucius dismisses that concern quickly. He only has eyes for Harry and Lucius's own potential reprieve. And as he hungrily drinks in every inch of Harry's appearance, he spots the mark on Harry's forehead and demands anew that Draco examine the misshapen, clearly jinxed boy before them. Quote, Harry saw Draco's face up close now, right beside his father's. They were extraordinarily alike, except that while his father looked beside himself with excitement, Draco's expression was full of reluctance, even fear. I don't know, he said. And he walked away toward the fireplace where his mother stood watching. Draco and Harry have been rivals since the beginning of their first year at Hogwarts, a dislike between them that boiled into an obsessive hatred by their sixth years. And that hate was often blinding for Harry. But as Harry stood atop the tower, paralyzed by Dumbledore's spell, masked by his own invisibility cloak, robbed of the choice to intervene, listening to Draco tell Dumbledore that he was at his power, at his mercy, and hearing Dumbledore say with such ferocity, but also such empathy and compassion— no, Draco, it is my mercy and not yours that matters now. That hatred turned into something much more nuanced and layered. Harry chose to see through his bias and look the truth of Draco's choice in the face. In the wake of the confrontation between Dumbledore and Draco, Harry will think, quote, he had not forgotten the fear in Malfoy's voice on that tower top, nor the fact that he had lowered his wand before the other Death Eaters arrived. Recall what Hermione said earlier in this book about the only way to stitch one's soul back together, to repair the damage murders and horcruxes have done. Remorse. Recall the role the word will play in the prince's tale when Dumbledore confronts Snape about Lily's death and the commitment Snape will make moving forward to avenge her. Recall the offer that Harry will make, the final one that he will extend to Tom Riddle as they circle each other at the end. Quote, think about what you've done, he'll say. Think and try for some remorse. Remorse is a choice. It can be, as Hermione said of Horcrux healing, an excruciating one. But here, as Draco refuses to sell out Harry, we're reminded that as inexcusable as myriad of his past actions have been, and they have been, and as insufficient as some of his half measures might seem even now, he's chosen to take steps, however small, however motivated by his own fear and regret, and as we'll learn in Cursed Child, his own resentment of the way his father's choices deprived him of the agency to make his own down the path of contrition. Draco's indecision buys Harry something he wasn't sure they had time. As Narcissa notes, they can't summon the Dark Lord until they're certain. Astutely, she observes that the wand Greyback handed her doesn't match the description of Harry's wand that Ollivander gave to Voldemort. Remember what he did to Roland Dolohoff, she asks? Voldemort's tired of suffering false alarms, tired of losing to Harry in freshly maddening ways. 
But of course, Harry's not the only one in the room, and as Greyback throws Hermione into view, Narcissa, who recognizes her from Madame Malkins, comes alive with possibility, just as Lucia said. Draco's still noncommittal, but this one's harder to evade. Uh, maybe, yeah. Lucius spots Ron amid the other prisoners. It's them, Potter's friends. Draco, look at him. Isn't it Arthur Weasley's son? What's his name? Yeah, said Draco What's his again. name? Positively Slughorn-esque here. God. Yeah, said Draco again. Is back to the prisoners. It could be. Draco doesn't even want to look at them. He doesn't want to defy his family. He doesn't know how to. But he doesn't want to actually sentence Ron and Hermione and Harry to death. And then the drawing room door opens and Harry hears a voice that further amplifies his fear. Bellatrix's. And she recognizes Hermione at once. And as soon as Lucius points out Harry, she moves to summon Voldemort. I was about to call him, says Lucius, and he physically stops her. Such a truly fascinating contrast. Harry and his friends are focused on staying alive and saving the world. Lucius, Bellatrix, and Greyback and all the rest just want to move further into Voldemort's favor. It's all a calculus for them, an equation of debt and value. And for Bella, of course, something else. Snake milking. You lost your authority when you lost your wand, Lucius, she shouts. And as Lucius tries to fend off her actions and Greyback demands his weight in gold, Bellatrix's eyes fall upon something that stuns her into silence. What do I want with gold, she asks. I seek only the honor of his, of what? Wand work? Snake milking? Fork tongue? What are we? we never find out because just as her eyes lock onto something Harry can't see and Lucius takes advantage of her momentary distraction to raise the sleeve on his arm, she screams, Stop! Do not touch it or we shall all perish if the Dark Lord comes now. She goes over to the Snatcher holding the sword and demands that he hand it over. She stuns him when he refuses. Then all of his fellows accept Greyback when they react. Quote, they were no match for her, even though there were four of them against one of her. She was a witch, as Harry knew, with prodigious skill and no conscience. <laughs> it's an incredible description. She demands that the cowering Greyback reveal where they got the sword. And then she shares a game-altering piece of information. Quote, Snape sent it to my vault in Gringotts, she says, handing Harry the weapon that they will need to piece together that a Horcrux must be in her vault, that she'd only be this terrified of the prospect of someone having been in her vault if there was something secured within that no one could be allowed to find. This is the sentence, reinforced by subsequent sentences, uttered without consideration for what it could mean to the people in the room that leads Harry to Hufflepuff's cup. She orders the prisoners sent to the cellar while she thinks how to extract the information that she needs. She's so out of control as she screams of the danger that they're in that literal fire shoots from her wand, burning a hole in the carpet. Narcissa tells Grey back to take the prisoners down, but Bellatrix stops him at the last moment to demand that he leave Hermione behind. And Ron protests at once. No, you can have me. Keep me. Bellatrix hits him. If she dies under questioning, Bellatrix says, I'll take you next. As they're ushered away, Harry sees her remove a short silver knife from her robes, the knife that will soon kill Dobby. She cuts Hermione free and drags her by the hair to the middle of the room. Bellatrix has made her choice. And like all of her others, it's with no concern for decency or humanity, or for anyone or anything but herself and Voldemort in the fascist, oppressive, bigoted world order that they seek to build, to operate out of fear instead of faith. She sets out to search for every kernel of truth before summoning Voldemort, no matter the cost. Reckon she'll let me have a bit of the girl when she's finished with her? Greyback asks sickeningly as he escorts Harry, Ron, and company to the dungeon chamber. Harry can feel Ron shaking with rage and terror. 
Grayback ushers them down the stairs through a heavy door that he unlocks with his wand. He leaves them in total darkness. From the book, the echoing bang of the slammed cellar door had not died away before there was a terrible, drawn-out scream from directly above them. Hermione, Ron bellowed, and he started to writhe and struggle against the ropes, tying them together so that Harry staggered. Hermione. Harry begs him to be quiet so they can form a plan, but Ron is beside himself with worry for the woman he loves. He's seen what Bellatrix can do. He's seen what hate and fear can do, and they all have. As Harry implores him to quiet for a moment so they can remove their ropes, another voice emerges through the dark. Harry, Ron, is that you? And it's Luna fucking Lovegood, a light in the dark if there ever was one. So amazing. She wasn't in Azkaban, after all, but here in this prison. Yes, it's me, she says in answer to their disbelieving query. Oh, no, I didn't want you to be caught. An icon until the end. Amazing. They ask her if she can help them remove their ropes. Oh, yes, I expect so. (laughs) Incredible. As Hermione and Bellatrix and Ron all scream, Luna retrieves an old nail from near Mr. Ollivander, who's also there in the cellar. They can hear Bellatrix interrogating Hermione about where they got the sword and Hermione screaming to no avail that they found it. From the book, Hermione screamed again. Ron struggled harder than ever and the rusty nail slipped onto Harry's wrist. This entire sequence is agonizing, our fear for Hermione paramount and our anguish for Ron overwhelming. Like Harry frozen atop the tower, there's nothing Ron can do right now to try to save the person he loves. There's no choice he can make yet. As Ron's lurch causes the nail in Luna's hand to slip and cut Harry's wrist, and Luna begs Ron to stay still because she can't see what she's doing in the dark, Ron remembers. The deluminator in his pocket is full of the light that Ron sucked out of the tent when the snatchers arrived. Quote, unable to rejoin their source. They simply hung there like tiny suns flooding the underground room with light and with hope and with reminders of the ever-present force of Dumbledore and good and possibility. They haven't lost yet. Harry looks at Luna and Ollivander and Dean and Griphook. Hello, Dean, Luna says. (laughs) Just truly the best. And they hear Bellatrix again, accusing Hermione of lying, torturing her to solicit a truth that Hermione cannot provide. You have been inside my vault at Gringotts, Bellatrix shrieks. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. What else did you take? What else have you got? Bellatrix's terror is as palpable as anyone's, though it is not motivated as the others is by love. The light in the cellar reveals Ron's desperation anew. He's now checking every inch of the surface for a possible exit or weak spot, even attempting to disapparate without a wand. Luna tells him that there's no way out. She and Mr. Ollivander, who's been there for ages, have tried everything, she says. Hermione screams again and, quote, the sound went through Harry like physical pain. He begins to search the walls as well. They hear Bellatrix use the Cruciatus curse on Hermione. Quote, this kills me. Ron was half sobbing as he pounded the walls with his fists, and Harry, in utter desperation, seized Hagrid's pouch from around his neck and groped inside it. Their fear for Hermione is all-consuming, and the inability to act, to choose to help, is a helplessness that defies comprehension for them. These are people of action. All Harry can do is literally grasp at the straws on his body, or in this case, the strings around his neck. He shakes the snitch. Nothing. He waves his broken wand. Nothing. And then he grabs the shard of Sirius's mirror, and again sees a flash of brightest blue. The eye that he thought at the beginning of the book belonged to Albus Dumbledore. The eye that will soon learn belongs to Aberforth Dumbledore. Help us, he yelled in mad desperation. We're in the cellar of Malfoy Manor. Help us. The eye blinked and was gone. Hermione's next plea is that the sword is a fake, and Lucius horrifyingly realizes that they can find out for sure. 
He tells Draco to fetch Griphook, who, as a goblin, would be able to identify the sword with certainty. Hearing this, Harry runs over to Griphook, who's barely conscious, and begs him to tell their captors that the sword is a fake. There's no time to say it here, but Harry's already heard Griphook confess during his fireside salmon bake with Dirk, Ted, Gornuck, and Dean that he's done just this with the sword that's actually in the vault. So Griphook hopefully shouldn't hesitate to do it again. But Harry can't trust that. He has to try to convince him because Griphook will ultimately have to choose to lie again in a situation much unlike his employment at Gringotts, where he could now try to trade the truth for his life. Remember what he said by the fire. Quote, this is a wizard's war. He doesn't want Harry and company to have the sword any more than he wants Voldemort to have it, as we'll soon see. They hear Draco run downstairs and order them to line up against the back wall. Ron clicks the deluminator to rob the cell of light and protect that secret. Malfoy exits with Griphook, and as soon as he closes the door, a crack fills the cellar. Ron sends the balls of light back into the room to reveal none other than Dobby, a free fucking elf. The Dobster! The mystery of how he arrived here will have to wait for the chat with Aberforth, who will eventually learn sent Dobby to Harry's aid. Here, there's a wave of almost impossible relief. Dobby's magic works in this room, and just like Voldemort, the Death Eaters have underestimated a house elf. Dobby can get them out of here. Dobby can save them. And it's not just that he can, it's that he wants to, that he chose to, that he decided to come help Harry, who gave him freedom and love and helped him turn his present courage into a gift of pride rather than burden that defies his teachings. This choice is one Dobby made freely, one he'd make every time if he could. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Quote, he was trembling from feet to the tips of his ears. He was back in the home of his old masters, and it was clear that he was petrified. Sometimes, of course, the hardest choices are the ones most worth making. Remember two of the lines we turn to so often. What Dumbledore told the school after Cedric's death. Remember if the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy. Remember what happened to a boy who was good and kind and brave because he strayed across the path of Lord Voldemort. And remember, too, what Ned told Bram when the boy asked if a man can still be brave if he's afraid. That is the only time a man can be brave. Dobby, like Harry, so many times before him, has found his courage and his fear. He's chosen to fight through that inhibition because he wants to do what he knows is right. He is an example to all of us. Harry Potter, he squeaked in the tiniest quiver of a voice. This is incredible. Dobby has come to rescue you. Just fucking love him. (sighs) Harry starts to ask how Dobby got there and then shifts to game planning as soon as another Hermione scream cuts through the air. He confirms that Dobby can disapparate from the cellar and then tells him to take Luna Dean and Mr. Ollivander at once. Ron suggests Shell Cottage. And then come back, said Harry. Can you do that, Dobby? Of course, Harry Potter whispered the little elf. Luna and Dean try to protest. They want to stay. They want to help Harry. But he insists. He needs to know that they're safe, that someone is safe. As he begs them to go, the pain in his scar pulls him back into Voldemort's mind. Kill me then, Voldemort, he hears Grindelwald say. I welcome death, but my death would not bring you what you seek. There's so much you do not understand. And while there's still so much we don't understand about Grindelwald and we're looking forward to finding out, there's also so much to parse here because Grindelwald is right. Voldemort doesn't understand what he's seeking or what is at play or how the choices that other people have made impact whom the Elder Wand obeys. The failure to understand this will be his undoing in the end, as Harry shows how much more matters than flashy wand work and pure power, as he tells Voldemort that he's too late, that he got it wrong, 
And while we don't yet know enough about Grindelwald and Dumbledore's story to say with certainty whether the remorse Dumbledore tells Harry and King's Cross others said Grindelwald felt in his later years was sincere, we can say undeniably that Grindelwald is making a choice here too. To defy Voldemort, to protect something and someone perhaps, to embrace death just as Dumbledore and Ignotus ultimately did. Just as Voldemort, who still doesn't understand, as Dumbledore told him, that there are things much worse than death, never could. Hermione's scream again pulls Harry back. He shouts to the others to go, promises that they'll follow. And as the group disapparates, Lucius shouts out. He heard the crack. They send Wormtail down to check. Since the end of Prisoner of Azkaban, when Dumbledore told Harry, quote, you have sent Voldemort a deputy who is in your debt. When one wizard saves another wizard's life, it creates a certain bond between them. And I'm much mistaken if Voldemort wants his servant in the debt of Harry Potter. Readers have waited for this moment. As our friends hear Wormtail approach, they know that their only chance is to try to take him under their power. And so they leave the lights on. And as soon as he opens the door, they grab him, Ron forcing his wand upward, Harry covering his mouth. Guess Wormy's not very good at nonverbal spells. Wormtail's silver hand closes around Harry's throat as he struggles to throw off his assailants. And as Harry fights for breath, he utters the words that trigger the debt. Quote, you're going to kill me? He says, after I saved your life, you owe me, Wormtail. The silver fingers slackened. Harry had not expected it. Back in Prisoner of Azkaban, Dumbledore told Harry, quote, this is magic at its deepest. It's most impenetrable, Harry. But trust me, the time may come when you will be very glad you saved Pettigrew's life. Dumbledore, as he so often was, was right. Like the other magic in the series centered on blood, on sacrifice, on something deeper and more elemental than the utterance of a word and wave of a wand, this magic acts like a thinking being. It's alive, acting in response to a choice made so long ago, responding to a decision that altered the course of someone's life. That debt, that magic, is what caused Wormtail, who betrayed his own friends because he was a coward, to hesitate here. And that brief hesitation, that fraction of a second, that doubt that, if present, didn't stop Wormtail from turning the potters over to Voldemort, triggers the silver hand that Voldemort gave to his servant. The hand, so poetically, that Wormtail took in his greed and his treachery on the same night that he took Harry's blood in the graveyard. And it turns against its wearer. Quote, May your loyalty never waver again, Wormtail, Voldemort told Pettigrew, and the silver hand affixed itself to the bleeding stump of his arm that night in Little Hangleton and Goblet of Fire. No, my lord, Wormtail said in reply. Never, my lord. But his loyalty did waver because of a choice that Harry made when he was 13 years old. That is incredible storytelling. When Harry blamed himself in Prisoner of Azkaban for letting Pettigrew go, positioning Trelawney's prediction about the Dark Lord's rise to come true, Dumbledore reminded him, as the time-turner had also taught him, that, quote, the consequences of our actions are always so complicated, so diverse, that predicting the future is a very difficult business indeed. Harry didn't know when the full consequences of his choice to spare Pettigrew's life would manifest, but manifest they are. Wormtail, Harry observes, quote, seemed just as shocked as Harry at what his hand had done, at the tiny, merciful impulse it had betrayed. As Ron takes Wormtail's wand, the treacherous rat, looks petrified to where, quote, his own silver fingers were moving inexorably toward his own throat. Harry, in one of the purest displays of his goodness in his heart, tries to stop what's unfolding, but he can't. 
quote, the silver tool that Voldemort had given his most cowardly servant had turned upon its disarmed and useless owner. Pettigrew was reaping his reward for his hesitation, his moment of pity. He was being strangled before their eyes. Woo! When Sirius and Lupin confronted Pettigrew at last in the Shrieking Shack, Sirius howled, then you should have died. Died rather than betrayed your friends as we would have done for you. And here at last, Wormtail does. But not for his friends, for his weakness. Strangled by the replacement for the hand that he gave a master who never cared for him. Killed by the weapon that Voldemort gave him, not ultimately to use on others, but to prevent the one-time turncloak from betraying another alliance. Our friends who indeed did try to stop this have about 0.2 seconds to spare for old Wormy once he's purple and dead on the ground. They run up the stairs and along the passageway to the drawing room where they spy through a crack in the door, Griphook examining the sword and Hermione barely moving on the ground. Griphook tells Bellatrix that the sword is a fake, a fiction that jeopardizes them all in the moment, leading her as it will to summon Voldemort. But a decision that also allows for the impending Gringotts infiltration to see what's in this vault that Bella is so desperate to keep locked. She slashes Griphook's face, screams in triumph, and presses her finger to the dark mark to summon Voldemort. Harry Scar bursts open, and he sees Voldemort looking down at the toothless old wizard, feels his outrage over the timing of the summons. Kill me then, Grindy yells. You will not win. You cannot win. That wand will never, ever be yours. An incredible flex here at the end, we have to say, in part yeah. because it's true, <laughs> yep. but also a deliberate provocation and a successful one. The combination of the belittling taunt and the summons from Bella and Voldemort's already diminishing control. Greenlight fills the room and Grindelwald falls dead. Back at Malfoy Manor, Bellatrix offers Hermione to Greyback. Ron, not thinking of his own safety, not thinking of anything but the desire to try and save Hermione now that he finally can— screams no and charges into the room and disarms the shocked Bellatrix, whose wand flies to Harry. Harry stuns Lucius and dodges curses from Draco and Narcissa and Greyback, and then he hears words to chill the blood. Stop or she dies. Bellatrix has a knife against the throat of Hermione's unconscious body. Drop your wands, she whispered. Drop them or we'll see exactly how filthy her blood is. Ron and Harry put Wormtail and Bellatrix's wands on the ground as they see beads of blood form on Hermione's neck. And as Draco grabs the wands and Bellatrix crows that Voldemort and Harry's death alike draw nearer, he can feel the truth of the words. Quote, Harry could see no way out. Not the first time he's thought that in this chapter. And then they all hear a noise from above. Dobby's music. Friends. They look up just in time to see Dobby, who's returned as he promised Harry he would unscrewing the chandelier, which falls, leading Bellatrix to release Hermione and jump aside, and the crystal shards explode across the room, bloodying Draco's face. Ron and Harry both move, with Ron pulling Hermione out from under the wreckage and Harry running toward Draco. Quote, and this is a big one. He leapt over an armchair and rested the three wands from Draco's grip, pointed all of them at Greyback, and yelled stupefy. And here, with the choice conveyed in half a sentence, Harry cements his victory. Though he doesn't know it yet, and though he has many more agonizing, life-altering, equally important choices to make along the road, choices that will also cement that path. Harry, unlike Voldemort, will realize that Draco Malfoy mastered the Elder Wand when he disarmed Dumbledore atop the tower, and that by extension, Harry mastered the Death Stick when he ripped Draco's wand from his hand here, 
As we've explored and will continue to do so both across this episode and the rest of the series, wand lore is subtle. But we know one fact, unambiguously. The wand chooses the wizard. And here, Draco's wand, and thus the other wand, the key wand that Draco has mastered, chooses Harry. Quote, so it all comes down to this, doesn't it? Harry will say to Voldemort at the end. Does the wand in your hand know its last master was disarmed? Because if it does, I am the true master of the Elder Wand. J.K. Rowling's characters make choices. It is one of the key defining themes of this story. But she makes choices too. And here, she chose to set up a moment that could generate a so-it-all-comes-down-to-this line in the endgame scene with just 13 words, half a sentence, a fleeting, passing moment, reminding us in yet another powerful way that the smallest moments, the most seemingly insignificant choices, can echo across history. Narcissa and Bellatrix now see that it was Dobby who dropped the chandelier, but he doesn't cower when his former masters call his name. You must not hurt Harry Potter, he says, embodying one of the most essential transformative ideals that fantasy stories can instill. That Frodo taught us, and Tyrion Arya, and Bran too, and Harry so many times. As Varys said, a very small man can cast a very large shadow. Yes. Bellatrix shrieks at Narcissa to kill the elf, but Dobby uses his magic to summon Narcissa's wand. How dare you take a witch's wand? How dare you defy your masters? Bellatrix shouts. Dobby has no master, squeaked the elf. Dobby is a free elf, and Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. Harry can feel how close Voldemort is now. He throws Ron a wand and orders him to go with Hermione. Then Harry reaches down for grip hook and the sword in the goblin's hand. He grabs Dobby's hand next and turns to disapparate. As he takes a last look into the drawing room as he sees a silver blur moving towards them, <laughs> Bellatrix's knife flying across the room. Harry keeps repeating the destination as he turns, but he's never been to Shell Cottage. He's heading into the unknown. From the book, Dobby's hand jerked in his. He wondered whether the elf was trying to take charge, to pull them in the right direction, and tried by squeezing the fingers to indicate that that was fine with him. That line is so sad to me always. Such a beautiful moment of trust. Their feet hit the ground, and Harry can smell the salt in the air. And he checks if Griphook is okay, and then looks through the darkness toward a cottage where he thinks he sees movement. And then he asks Dobby if this is it if they've reached Shell Cottage. But Dobby doesn't answer. Harry turns and screams Dobby's name. Quote, the elf swayed slightly, stars reflected in his wide, shining eyes. Together, he and Harry look down at the silver hilt of the knife protruding from the elf's heaving chest. Harry, who a moment ago held two wands in his hand, ready to fight, in case the cottage he could see housed enemies instead of friends, shouts, help, help, without thinking, not caring who calms as long as it's someone who can help keep Dobby alive. And he looks at the bloodstains spreading on Dobby's chest, from the wound that Dobby got at the sight of his former enslavement, challenging his former masters, asserting his independence and his freedom, saving his friends. Dobby reaches out for Harry, who catches him, lays him on his side on the grass. Quote, Dobby, no, don't die, don't die. The elf's eyes found him, and his lips trembled with the effort to form words. Harry. Potter. And then, with a little shudder, the elf became quite still, and his eyes were nothing more than great glassy orbs sprinkled with light from the stars they could not see. Dobby. 
this was the first time reading this book for the first time. This was the first moment that I had to really take a break. I was I was, I was crying hurt. so hard that I literally couldn't like decipher the words on the page. That was very tough. Awful. Chapter 24, The Wandmaker. An incredible one. Yeah. As Harry kneels beside Dobby's body and the reality of the elf sacrifice freely given breaks over him, he's transported back to the awful night under the astronomy tower when he beheld Dumbledore's lifeless form. Quote, it was like sinking into an old nightmare. He continues to repeat Dobby's name as he looks down at his tiny body from the book, even though he knew that the elf had gone where he could not call him back. Stunned by the magnitude of the loss, it takes him some time before he realizes that Bill and Flora and Luna and Dean are there with him. He asks where Hermione is, and Bill says that she's inside with Ron. She'll be all right, Bill says. And so Harry looks back down at Dobby, removes the blade from his chest, and covers him with his own jacket from the book like a blanket. As Dean and Fleur take the injured grip hook back inside and Bill begins to ask Harry about burying Dobby, Harry's scar burns again and he observes, quote, as if from the wrong end of a telescope, Voldemort's fury as the Dark Lord punishes his followers who have failed him once again, who have once again let Harry get away. From the book, his rage was dreadful and yet Harry's grief for Dobby seemed to diminish it so that it became a distant storm that reached Harry from across a vast silent ocean. The contrast could not be more stark, could not be more black and white. The Death Eaters, driven by sycophantic zeal and fear, lived to try to please the Dark Lord and win his favor. Dobby, inspired by love and gratitude, was willing to die for Harry, chose to put himself in harm's way to try to save his dearest friend. Love and kindness, as Dumbledore always told Harry, and as we see here in that line, really can dwarf hate. Yes. He says, I want to do it properly. Those were the first words of which Harry was fully conscious of speaking. Quote, not by magic. Have you got a spade? Harry's debt to Dobby can never be repaid. Harry's sweat and his toil are the best he can offer as tribute, and this he, too, does willingly. He begins to dig, alone in the Shell Cottage Garden. Quote, he dug with a kind of fury, relishing the manual work, glorying in the non-magic of it. For every drop of his sweat and every blister felt like a gift to the elf who had saved their lives. We speak often of how imperative it is to remember that magic isn't a cure-all, that these stories wouldn't hold the sway they do over us if it were. Harry's magic can't take away his pain, but even if it could, he wouldn't want it to this time. Dobby fought tirelessly all of his life to survive his hellish existence with the abusive Malfoys, to break through the confines of his kind, to try to keep Harry safe in Chamber of Secrets, to fight for freedom for himself and other elves. Harry wants to honor that, to feel the pain this time, to make payment with the ache in his muscles to an elf who was deprived of full agency for so long and then made the most of his free will once he found it. Harry has lost so many loved ones and friends. His parents, Cedric, Sirius, Dumbledore, Hedwig, Moody. And he'll lose more still. But Dobby's death is unique. He wanted so badly to find his place in the world and then to help make that world better once he did. He never took. He only gave. He embodies so fully the cripples and bastards and broken things idea that we revisit so often when we talk about A Song of Ice and Fire and the other fantasy stories that we cherish. In the first moment that Tyrion and Jon share, Tyrion says, quote, Never forget what you are, for surely the world will not. Make it your strength, then it can never be your weakness. Armor yourself in it, and it will never be used to hurt you. Dobby chose to make his weakness his strength, and then to try to help others do so too. He tried to save Harry before they were even friends because Harry represented something to Dobby that was worth fighting for. 
And Dobby and Time came to represent the same thing for Harry, a selfless soul who made choices to better circumstances for himself and others. He helped Harry countless times throughout the series, and he did so not out of obligation, but out of pure desire. Harry's gratitude for that is overpowering, and his grief is too. Yet he does not shirk it, does not seek to evade it. He surrenders to it, and it acts just as it did in the wake of Sirius's death when Voldemort could not stand to possess Harry any longer because he could not stand to feel what Harry was feeling at that time as a shield from the pain of his connection to Voldemort, who views emotions like love and longing as the mark of the weak. Quote, his scar burned, but he was master of the pain. He felt it, yet was apart from it. He had learned control at last, learned to shut his mind to Voldemort, the very thing Dumbledore had wanted him to learn from Snape. Harry's mourning, his heart, is his protection, just as it has always been. Quote, this is a great line, grief, it seemed, drove Voldemort out, though Dumbledore, of course, would have said that it was love. On Harry Diggs, the shock of Dobby's death, and the physical exertion of digging the grave have an almost monastic effect on him. He listens to the waves in his own breathing as he works and replays in his mind what he heard at Malfoy Manor. From the book, an understanding blossomed in the darkness. His mind alternates between hallows and the horcruxes, and at last he begins to see things clearly. His fevered fascination with uniting the deathly hallows evaporating, vanishing in the face of his pain and fear and loss. From the book, he felt as though he had been slapped awake again. Harry's clarity isn't only for himself. As he sinks further into the grave that he's digging, he finds new understanding about Voldemort, too. He's sure he knows where Voldemort was tonight and who he killed and why. Harry's starting to realize as he digs Dobby's final resting place what he must do. Shortly, he'll make that decision official, deciding that the pursuit of the Horcruxes must take precedence, as Dumbledore knew, over the quest for the Hallows. Through the throb of his grief, Harry marvels at the intricacy of Dumbledore's design— much of it hidden from him still. And Harry thinks to himself, he thought of Wormtail dead because of one small unconscious impulse of mercy. Dumbledore had foreseen that. How much more had he known? Such a good line. As the sky begins to lighten, Ron and Dean return. And after assuring Harry that Hermione is doing better and receiving care from Flora, they join him in the hole to wordlessly share the burden of digging the grave. Quote, Harry had his retort ready for when they asked him why he had not simply created a perfect grave with his wand, but he did not need it. They share an understanding now, forged from facing down incomparable danger and experiencing unbearable loss. Each of them gives over an article of their clothing, a simple but incredibly touching and powerful gesture, given what clothes represented to Dobby. Freedom, independence, the ability to choose. Harry wraps his jacket even more tightly around Dobby, like a father nestling his son in a blanket. And Ron takes off his shoes and socks, Dobby's favorite and places them on the elf's feet. Dean gives over his woolen hat. Quote, we should close his eyes. Harry hears, and he realizes that Luna, Bill, Floor, and Hermione, still shaky on her feet, have arrived to pay their respects to. Ron puts his arm around Hermione and holds her close, and Luna, with such tenderness, reaches down and closes Dobby's eyes. There, she said softly, now he could be sleeping. And Harry lowers Dobby gently into the earth and looks down at him one last time. Quote, he forced himself not to break down. He thinks again of Dumbledore's death, of his funeral, and the, quote, rows and rows of golden chairs and the Minister of Magic in the front row, the recitation of Dumbledore's achievements, the stateliness of the white marble tomb. 
And Harry laments the rough, improvised nature of Dobby's grave and ceremony. Quote, he felt that Dobby deserved just as grand a funeral. Yet what more could anyone ask for than to be laid to rest surrounded by loved ones whose hearts are overfilled with gratitude and appreciation, not just for Dobby's final irreparable sacrifice, but for his inspirational journey from servitude to freedom, to have made the kind of impact on others that makes them want to mourn you and honor you. Luna says, I think we ought to say something. I'll go first, shall I? Everyone looks to her in inspiration too, so recently imprisoned but standing tall here, ready to comfort others. Thank you so much, Dobby, she says, for rescuing me from that cellar. It's so unfair that you had to die when you were so good and brave. I'll always remember what you did for us. I hope you're happy now. The others add their thanks, and then it's Harry's turn. From the book, Harry swallowed. Goodbye, Dobby, he said. It was all he could manage. But Luna had said it all for him. And Harry said it too in so many ways, with the grave he dug and the squeeze of the hand that told Dobby he trusted him and the faith he put in Dobby time and again, with the gillyweed and the room of requirement and tracking Malfoy and being a friend. Bill raises his wand and the freshly churned dirt rises and then falls, covering Dobby where he rests. Harry asks for a private moment and stays behind. He takes a round, white, sea-smooth stone from the flower bed and places it on Dobby's grave. And he reaches into his pocket and examines the two wands that he now carries. Quote, he selected the shorter of the two, which felt friendlier in his hand. The wand he took fatefully, we will soon discover, from Draco Malfoy. The wand that he now masters. The wand that signals that he also masters the Elder Wand. He points it at the stone and carves an inscription. And he knows that Hermione could have done it more neatly. But he wants to do it, just as he wanted to dig the grave. And the words read, here lies Dobby, a free elf. Words that so perfectly honor Dobby's life and a sacrifice that he made because he could. Quote, he looked down at his handiwork for a few more seconds, then walked away, his scar still prickling a little and his mind full of those things that had come to him in the grave. Ideas that had taken shape in the darkness. Ideas both fascinating and terrible. Dobby's death has robbed Harry of something, but granted him something too. The Harry that emerges from the grave, just like the Harry that will later emerge from the pensive, is different, more self-assured, like a compass pointing north, weighed down by despair, but guided by newfound certainty, too. He walks into Shell Cottage and finds everyone sitting in the living room discussing the new security precautions. The Death Eaters now know that Ron is with Harry, and with his ghoul cover blown, Voldemort's minions are certain to come after the Weasleys. Ginny, thankfully, was home for the holidays, safe from the Death Eaters at Hogwarts. Bill has evacuated the family from the borough to Aunt Muriel's. Perhaps a fate worse than Azkaban? <laughs> Don't apologize, he tells Harry when he sees his face. It was always a matter of time. Both Muriel's and Shell Cottage are now protected by the Fidelius charm, with Arthur and Bill respectively serving as secret keepers. Bill tells Harry that because Shell Cottage is so small, translation, Flora and I would like to continue making love throughout the <laughs> day and <Andy> night. <laughs> He's, you have the sound of the crashing waves to cover that, you know? <laughs> He's going to move Griphook and Ollivander to Muriel's as soon as they're able to travel, probably within the hour. Well, slow down, my guy. <laughs> From the book, no, Harry said. And Bill looked startled. I need both of them here. I need to talk to them. It's important. He heard the authority in his own voice, the conviction, the sense of purpose that had come to him as he dug Dobby's grave. He's choosing not to waver, not to hedge, not to wait to consult his friends and agonize over what's right. He knows what needs to happen next. He's ready to act. Harry tells Bill that he's going to wash up and then he'll need to talk to them both, quote, straight away. As Harry rinses the mud and blood from his body, he again replays the night's events in his mind. 
He thinks of the piercing blue eye that he saw in the broken mirror. Quote, Harry knew what he had seen. Dumbledore's eye, he thinks. And in a sense, he's right. He thinks of how he looked into that blue and begged for help and how help had indeed found them. And he recalls the headmaster's words back in Chamber of Secrets as he knew Harry stood invisible and listening in Hagrid's hut. Help will always be given at Hogwarts to those who ask for it. Harry can't yet see all the details of Dumbledore's grand design, but the broad strokes, the outlines, are steadily coming further into focus. Quote, he looked out over the ocean and felt closer this dawn than ever before, closer to the heart of it all. Full clarity, of course, will only come when Harry dives into Snape's memories and learns the truth not just about what surrounds him, but about what's within the final Horcrux that Voldemort never meant to make. When he walks into the forest to sacrifice himself, when he speaks to Dumbledore from beyond the grave, Harry can feel that Voldemort is getting closer to a breakthrough too. Though, as is always the case, Voldemort's will be narrow, misguided, wrong. But will also have consequences, as all of our choices do. Quote, Harry understood and yet did not understand. His instinct was telling him one thing, his brain quite another. The Dumbledore in Harry's head smiled. Surveying Harry over the tips of his fingers, pressed together as if in prayer. He thinks of the Deluminator that Dumbledore gave Ron to lead him back to help Ron find the light. He thinks of Wormtail and how Albus knew that the Turncloak felt some tiny smidge of regret, enough that the magic of the life debt between Harry and Pettigrew would activate somehow. Dumbledore knew people and understood that a person's essential self is revealed in moments of true desperation. He saw that in Snape, of course. He saw it in himself. And he knows that he'll see it in Harry, when Harry learns the truth of his identity at last. Quote, And if you knew them, Harry thinks to himself here, what did you know about me, Dumbledore? This just gives me a chill every time. Am I meant to know, but not to seek? Did you know how hard I'd find that? Is that why you made it this difficult? So I'd have time to work that out. (sighs) Dumbledore will answer those questions for Harry in King's Cross, but the real beauty of that moment is that it comes after Harry has already answered the questions for himself. His decision to head to the forest to give himself over to Voldemort must be a choice that he makes freely, because sacrifice cannot be asked. It must be given. He knows, as he helped Harry see in Half-Blood Prince, that destiny is not predetermined. It is what we make it. Got to, Dumbledore said to Harry at that time. Of course you've got to, but not because of the prophecy, because you yourself will never rest until you've tried. He knew that Harry would never rest, that he'd want to walk into that arena with his head held high. And he was right. Quote, if you laid hands on them, Dumbledore will tell Harry of the Hallows and King's Cross. I wanted you to possess them safely. You are the true master of death because the true master does not seek to run away from death. As Harry dries his hands, the outline of an all-too-familiar building flashes before his eyes. Hogwarts. Harry finds Bill and Fleur by the stairs and reiterates that he needs to speak to Grip Hook and Ollivander. Fleur briefly objects, noting that both are injured and exhausted. Meanwhile, Bill was trying to eject them from the premises five minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, I'm sorry, but it can't wait. I need to talk to them now, privately and separately. It's urgent. Bill demands that Harry explain. Ronnie says, refuse to tell him anything. Harry flatly, but without annoyance, without animosity, but also without hesitation, refuses. You're in the order, Bill. 
you know Dumbledore left his mission. We're not supposed to talk about it to anyone else. Bill regards Harry for a long moment, then asks whom Harry would like to speak to first. And this is the moment of truth. Time is short and growing shorter. Voldemort, Harry knows, is close to acquiring the Elder Wand. The answer he gives now will set the course of the battle to come. From the book, now is the moment to decide Horcruxes or Hallows. Griphook, Harry says. I'll speak to Griphook first. Horcruxes it is. Mm. From the book, his heart was racing as if he had been sprinting and had just cleared an enormous obstacle. The conversations that Harry has next will confirm that this was the right choice. And armed with information, he needs to walk the path that he's now decided to travel, but he's already decided. Decided to trust in the lessons and guidance of the past. Decided to fight to undo evil. Decided to follow the course Dumbledore set for him and Ron and Hermione wanted it to stick to. Decided to let go of the longing growing in his heart for the Hallows. And in letting it go, of course, he'll position himself to master the Hallows in the end. Bill leads Harry up the stairs, and after a few steps, he realizes that Ron and Hermione aren't with him, and he stops and calls to them. I need you two as well. <laughs> this is an incredible moment. Even Ron and Hermione, who've shared so much with Harry, are awed by what they're seeing, by the conviction and leadership that he's displaying. And looking relieved by the invitation, they join him, and together they go to Secret Book. Harry apologizes for disturbing the goblin's rest and asks after his mending legs. You probably don't remember, Harry begins to say, but of course Griphook does. That I was the goblin who showed you to your vault the first time you ever visited Gringotts, he replies. Even now, after seven years in the wizarding world, Harry doesn't fully grasp the extent of his fame. Griphook is perplexed by Harry. He tells him that he watched Harry bury Dobby from the window. And you know what else Grippy finds weird? The fact that he's alive right now because a wizard went out of his way to save a goblin's life. Griphook has worked closely with witches and wizards, observing their needs, safeguarding their treasures, resenting them. He knows them and recognizes their pettiness and their greed. And so it is highly notable that with a lifetime of that experience, watching those wizarding wars unfold, Griphook is so surprised to encounter a wizard who values life, no matter whose. But Harry's impatient. Everything that he's doing is about pursuing and protecting the sanctity of life. But that doesn't mean he has time for a philosophical chat about it all. (laughs) He needs Gripbook's help now. Quote, I need to break into a Gringotts vault. He didn't mean to state it quite so plainly, but as he spoke, he saw through Voldemort's eyes the outline of Hogwarts. He knows that soon the Dark Lord will have the Elder Wand. Ron and Hermione, who didn't debrief with Harry before this, remember, and are hearing his plan right along with Griphook, look completely stunned. They're not alone. It is impossible, Griphook says. Ron and Harry, though, point out that isn't true. A would-be thief, Quarrel, broke into a vault during Harry's very first visit to the bank. Griphook says that the vault in question was empty and therefore not robustly protected. And then we get the hammer line from Harry Potter. Well, the vault we need to get into isn't empty. And I'm guessing its protection will be pretty powerful. It belongs to the Lestranges. Passage continues. He saw Hermione and Ron look at each other, astonished. But there would be time enough to explain after Griphook had given his answer. No one in the bedroom with Harry is prepared to hear it, though. You have no chance, said Griphook flatly. No chance at all. 
He begins to recite the words inscribed at the entrance to deter would-be thieves. But this doesn't cow Harry. He completes the sentence for Griphook. He knows the madness of what he's suggesting, but also the imperativeness, Mm -hmm. and also that the noble intention behind this quest justifies it. I'm not trying to get myself any treasure, he tells the goblin. I'm not trying to take anything for personal gain. Can you believe that? Griphook says that if you could believe it of any wizard, it would be Harry, who showed so much uncommon care for Dobby and himself. Griphook's conversation with Harry is fascinating in the way that it further reveals and explores the fissures within the magical community and the resentment of the non-humans therein. Wizards and witches, or as Griphook calls them here, wand carriers, have long taken their fellows for granted and ignored their complaints. Recall what Dumbledore said to Harry of the Statue of Magical Brethren in the Ministry of Magic. Quote, the fountain we destroyed tonight told a lie. We wizards have mistreated and abused our fellows for too long, and we are now reaping our reward. We've seen it with the house elf rites. We've seen it with the centaur's reclamation of their forest. And we're seeing it here now with the goblins as Griphook takes this opportunity to air their grievances. He says, the right to carry a wand has long been contested between wizards and goblins. Well, goblins can do magic without wands, said Ron. That is immaterial. Wizards refuse to share the secrets of wand lore and with other magical beings. They deny us the possibility of extending our powers. This discussion primes us yet again for the importance of wand lore for the endgame. And it also illustrates an important point. Most people support equality in the abstract. But true fairness cannot be achieved without a cost in status and currency and access to resources in simple convenience. Privileged groups, no matter how fair-minded, are loath to hand over such things out of the goodness of their hearts. In other words, Griphook, as annoying as his timing appears, is right to raise such issues now when he has leverage and wizards in need of goblin aid have no choice but to listen. Ron notes that goblins don't share their magic either, like how to make their swords and their armor, but Harry, growing worried by Griphook's visible anger, quiets him. It doesn't matter, said Harry, noting Griphook's rising color. This isn't about wizards versus goblins or any other sort of magical creature, but it is. It is about precisely that says Griphook. As the Dark Lord becomes ever more powerful, your race is set still firmly above mine. Gringotts falls under wizarding rule. House elves are slaughtered, and who amongst the wand carriers protests? Hermione Granger, that's who. We do, we protest, and I'm hunted quite as much as any goblin or elf, Griphook. I'm a mudblood. Hermione notes that Harry was the one who freed Dobby and continues, did you know that we've wanted elves to be freed for years? Parenthetical Ron fidgeted uncomfortably on the arm of Hermione's chair. You can't want you-know-who defeated more than we do, Griphook. Quite a charitable use of we to describe Hermione's own very radical and very righteous position on house elf emancipation. But point taken, our trio is fighting for fairness and freedom in the end of a regime that would seek to deny them. Griphook, while not convinced, is interested enough to hear Harry out. He asks Harry what he's after, noting that the sword inside the vault is a fake and that Harry must know he has the real one since he asked him to lie. But the fake sword isn't the only thing in the vault, is it? asked Harry. Perhaps you've seen the other things in there? Griphook says it's against the Goblin's Code to speak of such things. Quote, we are the guardians of fabulous treasures, many of which he notes and will note again as a firm condition moving forward, were wrought by their hands. So young, he says as he looks at the three of them and the sword in his hands, to be fighting so many. Harry begs him for help. You're our one chance, he says. In the end, Griphook, intrigued by these young rebels and impressed by the odds they're willing to take on, agrees to consider Harry's quest. As Harry takes a sword, he thinks he sees resentments in the goblin's eyes. Our trio exits, and Hermione, of course, has picked up the subtext, fueling Harry's request. Harry, she whispers, are you saying there's a horcrux in Lestrange's vault? Yes, Harry says, and he lays out his thinking. Quote, Bellatrix was terrified when she thought we'd been in there. She was beside herself. 
why. What did she think we'd seen? What else did she think we might have taken? Something she was petrified you know who would find out about. And Ron voices his understandable confusion, saying he thought they were looking for places to which Voldemort had a real personal connection. But Harry understands Voldemort. This makes perfect sense to him. Quote, he wanted Ron and Hermione to understand. He posits for them that even if Voldemort, who never had any gold as a boy, never used the bank directly, he would have seen it during his first trip to Diagon Alley, just as Harry had, and viewed it rightly as a wizarding world institution, a symbol of belonging in the magical realm. Quote, I think he would have envied anyone who had a key to a Gringotts vault. Additionally, as Harry reminds them, Bellatrix and the Cockredolphus. <laughs> Can we get some pages for Rodolphus, by the way? <laughs> Tuck- I mean, he'll pop up in Cursed Child, it, I but think like- it's actually perfect that the Cockredolphus <laughs> is just lurking on the edges of scenes, watching his wife slobber over <laughs> Voldemort. <laughs> <sighs> They were the rarest kind of Death Eater, Harry says, the kind who kept faith and searched for their leader, even when it looked like all was lost. Harry, though, doesn't believe that Voldemort would have revealed the true nature of the object he asked them to sequester, just as he never told Lucius what the diary really was. He would have asked her simply to keep it safe. Quote, the safest place in the world for anything you want to hide, Hagrid told me. Except for Hogwarts. Well, if Hagrid said it. <laughs> we're about to see how safe Hogwarts really is. Ron drinks this all in and then says, you really understand him. And for a long time, Harry resisted that understanding, feared it. Recall how Harry confessed to Dumbledore in Chamber of Secrets that Tom Riddle had observed the similarities between them. And coming from his good personal friend, yes, he took those observations seriously. Recall how Harry protested that characterization and then gave in to his fears. He remembered how the Sorting Hat wanted to put him in Slytherin House. And recall, too, the signature line that Dumbledore issued in response, a line that cuts to the heart of one of the Harry Potter saga's central propositions and that has guided and encouraged Harry and readers alike for so many years. It is our choices, Harry, Dumbledore says, that show what we truly are far more than our abilities. Dumbledore, of course, learned that directly, and Harry has too. And here, he's choosing to give in to that understanding that Ron is highlighting, to use it as a guide and a tool. Bits of him, Harry says in reply. Bits. I just wish I'd understood Dumbledore as much. It's time to talk to Ollivander. From the book, Ron and Hermione looked bewildered, but impressed as they followed him across the little landing. Quite a contrast to those lonely, angry nights in the woods, wondering if anyone had a plan. The wand maker is in a bad way. Wan, and quote, emaciated the bones of his face, sticking sharply against the yellow skin, Again, Bill was like, let's get this guy out of here as soon as possible so we can have the bed again. (laughs) It did say there were three bedrooms. Listen. (laughs) Harry apologizes for disturbing him, and Mr. Ollivander thanks him for saving their lives. He says, I thought we would die in that place. I can never thank you. Never thank you enough. Harry can feel his scar throbbing and knows he's running out of time to try to beat Voldemort to the wand or stop him from getting to it. From book, yet he had made his decision when he chose to speak to Grip Hook first. He presents Mr. Ollivander with the halves of his broken holly wand and asks if it can be repaired. No, Mr. Ollivander says. A wand that has suffered this degree of damage cannot be repaired by any means that I know of. Notable, given that Harry will in fact find a way to repair it using the Elder Wand, a key here to reinforce how little even a wand maker knows of the Wand of Destiny's true power. Harry was prepared to hear that answer, but even so, it's devastating. 
Next, Harry hands the wand maker the two wands, which he commandeered in the escape from Malfoy Manor and asks him to identify them. The first, longer, more rigid, fittingly, quote, unyielding, Mm -hmm. belonged to Bellatrix Lestrange. The second, shorter, and again fittingly and notably, quote, reasonably springy, was Draco Malfoy's. Harry makes note of the past tense in both cases, the use of belonged and was instead of belongs and is. Was, Harry asks, isn't it still his? In response, Ollivander gives Harry and us essential insight into the mysterious magic surrounding Wandlore magic, which will be crucial in the battle to come. Perhaps not, he says, if you took it. I did. Then it may be yours, Ollivander says. Of course, the manner of taking matters much depends on the wand itself. In general, however, where a wand has been won, its allegiance will change. This, we'll realize, is exactly what transpired. Draco's wand recognized Harry as its new master when he took it. And because of that, the other wand that Draco mastered when he disarmed Dumbledore, the Elder Wand, will recognize Harry as its master as well, never working properly for Voldemort, whom it did not serve or obey. Harry observes that Ollivander speaks of wands like beings that can think and feel, and that's because they can. The wand chooses the wizard, Ollivander says. That much has always been clear to those of us who have studied wand lore. Harry confirms that a wizard who isn't the master of a wand can still use it. And Ollivander says, yes, any witch or wizard can channel their magic. But the best results come from the wand with whom the full connection exists. And of course, as we've seen with the instance of Priori Incantatum in the graveyard and the way Harry's wand behaved that night in the sky, and the bet Harry will make that the Elder Wand won't kill its master, the connection matters because the wand recognizes the bond too and seeks to protect it. These connections are complex, Ollivander says, and Harry's decision to learn about these complexities so that he can appreciate, understand, and use them will position him to beat a wizard who has never bothered to understand them at all, thinking only that power and skill would win the day. An initial attraction, Ollivander says, and then a mutual quest for experience, the wand learning from the wizard, the wizard from the wand. Harry asks if he can use the wand he took from Draco safely. I think so. Ollivander says, <laughs> subtle laws govern wand ownership, but the conquered wand will usually bend its will to its new master. We'll soon see how true that is. Ron asks the same of Pettigrew's wand, which he took and which Ollivander made for him during his imprisonment. Yes, he tells them. If you want it, it is more likely to do your bidding and do it well than another wand. And this holds true for all wands, does it? Harry asks. He's preparing to steer Ollivander to the subject of the Elder Wand at last. You ask deep questions, Mr. Potter. Ollivander says, wand lore is a complex and mysterious branch of magic. It feels like a lifetime ago that Harry was more interested in sneaking into Hogsmeade or focusing on Quidditch or thinking about girls than focusing on his mission of the moment. He's changed so deeply. And he presses on, confirming that it isn't necessary to kill Wand's owner in order to win the instrument's allegiance. Ollivander, disturbed now, swallows as he says, no, quote, I should not say that it is necessary. There are legends, though, said Harry, and as his heart rate quickened, the pain in his scar became more intense. He was sure that Voldemort had decided to put his idea into action. Legends about a wand, or wands, that have passed from hand to hand by murder. Ollivander blanches. He clearly understands what Harry is referencing. Only one wand, I think, he whispered. Harry asks rhetorically, if Voldemort is interested in that wand, he's playing out a script in his mind here. And Ollivander is stunned and more than a little afraid. I, how, croaked Ollivander, and he looked appealingly at Ron and Hermione for help. How do you know this? Harry is saying things aloud that he could only know if he had been in the room or seen through Voldemort's eyes, as is the case. But Harry does nothing to dispel Ollivander's terror in the face of this seeming omniscience. Quote, 
He wanted you to tell him how to overcome the connection between our wands, said Harry. Ollivander looked terrified. And Ollivander screams that he was tortured. Quote, I had no choice but to tell him what I knew, what I guessed. The power of somebody in this story saying, I had no choice, is substantial. I understand, Harry says, excusing Ollivander, inviting him to continue to reveal what occurred. And Harry confirms that Ollivander told Voldemort about the twin cores and encouraged him to use another wizard's wand instead. Quote, Ollivander looked horrified, transfixed by the amount that Harry knew. Harry, showing astonishing calm and poise, notes that the advice didn't work and asks Ollivander if he knows why. And it turns out that Ollivander's as mystified as everyone else is by what Harry's wand did to Lucius's borrowed wand, the night of the Seven Potters battle. I had never heard of such a thing, he says. Only Dumbledore in King's Cross will be able to explain this with one of his trademark guesses that Harry and readers alike accept as truth, as gospel. That the unprecedented connection between Harry and Voldemort included Harry's wand imbibing some of the power of Voldemort's that night in the graveyard when brother wands met. And then, recognizing, quote, a man who was both kin and mortal enemy, it regurgitated some of his own magic against him. Back in the present day, Ollivander confirms in reply to Harry's query about the wand that changes hands by murder, and that Voldemort will continue to think must do so, thus killing Snape to try to secure it. That Voldemort's response to what Harry's wand did to the borrowed wand absent a twin core during the Seven Potters battle was to seek the Elder Wand. Yes, Ollivander says. He wanted to know everything I could tell him about the wand, variously known as the Death Stick, the Wand of Destiny, or the Elder Wand. The passage continues. Harry glanced sideways at Hermione. She looked flabbergasted. But, Harry's realized, Voldemort will soon discover that Harry's wand is off the board. Hermione's wand and the Blackthorn wand are back at Malfoy Manor, and if they're examined properly using Priory Incantatum, Harry says, Voldemort will learn the truth. And now... Ollivander has something new to offer in response. Quote, The Dark Lord no longer seeks the Elder Wand only for your destruction, Mr. Potter. He is determined to possess it because he believes it will make him truly invulnerable. And this tracks, of course, with everything that we know about Voldemort and his view on power. Recall what Dumbledore said in Half-Blood Prince about Tom Riddle's forays and his journey, quote, beyond the realms of what we might call usual evil. He isn't content to just settle for the win. He needs to dominate always in newfound ways. He must be, as the fuzzy memory of his self said to Harry in Chamber of Secrets so long ago, the greatest sorcerer in the world. And that blinding greed and arrogance will be his downfall. And will it, Harry asks, of the wand and its power? It will, of course, not be. Will, in fact, be the source of Voldemort's downfall as his hubris blinds him to his failures. But Ollivander isn't Harry. Few are. And Ollivander is afraid. Quote, the owner of the Elder Wand must always fear attack. But the idea of the Dark Lord in possession of the Death Stick is, I must admit, formidable. Harry's discomfited by the enthralled nature of Ollivander's statement, just as he was back in stone when the Wandmaker spoke with such relish of Voldemort's achievements. I think we must expect great things from you, Mr. Potter, he said then. After all, he who must not be named did great things, terrible, yes, but great. Hermione asks if Mr. Ollivander really believes the Elder Wand exists. Oh, yes, he says noting how possible it is to trace the wand's course through history, just as Xenophilia said. He says that there are gaps in that history, but, quote, always it resurfaces. It's not a fairy tale, he says. It's not a myth. On the subject of the transitive property of the Elder Wand, though, Ollivander is frustratingly vague, but in a way that leaves open the path that Harry will follow when he comes to realize that he, despite committing no murders, is in fact the master of it. 
quote, whether it needs to pass by murder, I do not know. Its history is bloody, but that may be simply due to the fact that it is such a desirable object and arouses such passions in wizards. Immensely powerful, dangerous in the wrong hands, and an object of incredible fascination to all of us who study the power of wands. Harry asks about Grigorovich. It was a rumor, he says, of the wandmaker's possession of the death stick. You can see how good it would be for business that he was studying and duplicating the qualities of the Elder Wand. And finally, Harry arrives at the crucial question. What do you know about the Deathly Hallows? The what? Asked the wandmaker, looking utterly bewildered. Xenophilius Lovegood told Harry that precious few knew about the three legendary items and that fewer still actually believe they exist. He's asking because he needs to confirm his other suspicion, that Voldemort does not know either. Huh? That he seeks the wand, not recognizing its place as one of three. That he's once again failing to see the whole and that his obsession over the part is something Harry can seek to exploit. Ollivander's answer confirms this. The Deathly Hallows, Harry repeats, Ollivander says. I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. Is this still something to do with wands? Harry observes him closely and decides that he believes him. Harry bids Ollivander to get some rest, and our friends exit to discuss what they've just learned. And Harry tells Ron and Hermione that Grigorovich had the Elder Wand, that Grindelwald stole it from him and rose to power, and that Dumbledore won the Elder Wand from Grindelwald in their famous duel. They're obviously stunned. And as he speaks, he can see Voldemort getting nearer and nearer to Hogwarts, but he fights to hold off the vision so that he can finish explaining. And Ron, in his shock, says, Dumbledore had the Elder Wand? But then, where's it now? Good question. But Harry knows the answer. At Hogwarts, he says. And Ron shouts that they must go now, must try to beat Voldemort to it. It's too late for that, Harry says. He knows where it is. He's there now. And Ron is aghast. Quote, why did you talk to Griphook first? We could have gone. We could still go. And in a way, it's much the same pitch that Harry had been making back when Ron and Hermione wanted him to focus on the Horcruxes instead of the Hallows. And Harry sinks to the ground from the pain in his head. And he says, quote, Dumbledore didn't want me to have it. He didn't want me to take it. He wanted me to get the Horcruxes. But Harry isn't doing this because Dumbledore said so. He's doing it because he's chosen to. Because his own epiphanies and revelations have shown him the righteousness of this course. The unbeatable wand, Ron shouts. But Harry insists that he's not supposed to find it. And this choice, like so many others that Harry makes, will contribute to his victory. Harry will choose, after defeating Voldemort, to use the Elder Wand not to keep, but to repair his own. He doesn't want to use the Death Stick. His mastery of it is ultimately more impactful as a way of stopping Voldemort from using it than as a way of using it himself just like so much else of the protective, defensive magic that we associate with Harry, like Expelliarmus and the Invisibility Cloak and the map and his Patronus. Suddenly, Harry's perspective shifts. The connection which once allowed Voldemort to bait Harry into disaster at the Ministry now allows Harry access to vital intelligence on the Dark Lord. He gives in, both because he can't fight it off and because he needs to confirm that he's correct. Harry sees Voldemort at Hogwarts with Snape heading toward the lake, the Dark Lord dismisses Snape and casts a disillusionment charm. Quote, it would not do for Snape or indeed anyone else to see where he was going. Another reminder that unlike Harry, Voldemort always chooses not to rely on others, not to trust. He's invisible now to prying eyes except the eyes of his greatest foe, the Chosen One. He looks up at, quote, the beloved castle, his first kingdom, his birthright. Then Voldemort comes to Dumbledore's white marble tomb and Harry can sense the Dark Lord's excitement. He raised the old yu wand, how fitting that it would be its last great act. The tomb splits open and the shroud wrappings fall away. 
Voldemort sees the corpse of his great enemy, the only wizard he ever feared, glasses still perched upon his face and feels, quote, amused derision. This is a sickening violation of a sacred space, but one in keeping with Voldemort's utter lack of understanding of death. It's not something to respect. It's another obstacle to overcome. He sees the Elder One clutched between his hands. Quote, had the fool imagined that marble or death would protect the wand? Had he thought that the Dark Lord would be scared to violate his tomb? The spider-like hand swooped and pulled the wand from Dumbledore's grasp, and as he took it, a shower of sparks flew from its tip, sparkling over the corpse of its last owner, ready to serve a new master at last. But of course, the Dark Lord is wrong, and it will spell his final doom. Chapter 25. Shell Cottage. Harry spends the next few days at Bill and Flora's seaside home, often alone atop the cliff, looking out at the sea. Quote, it was a lonely and beautiful place. A fitting place for Harry's period of rumination on his decision not to seek the Elder Wand. Quote, the enormity of his decision not to race Voldemort to the wand still scared Harry. He could not remember, ever before, choosing not to act. Harry can only hope that it was the right move, but he's full of doubts. And Ron isn't shy about voicing the doubts that he has. Quote, what if Dumbledore wanted us to work out the symbol in time to get the wand, he asks. How, he asks, are they going to beat an unbeatable wand? And Harry can't vocalize why he came to the decision that he did. He can't even fully explain it again to himself, how the path unraveled for him so clearly that night. The arguments that he attempts to reconstruct sound, quote, feebler to him now. And the specifics of Dumbledore's design are still hidden from him. But his gut, his instinct, based on his knowledge of Dumbledore and his own innate sense of right and wrong, and of the differences between himself and Voldemort, of the justice of seeking to destroy something evil and unnatural rather than pursue the attainment of something that would protect him, guided him here. Hermione supports the decision, noting that it would be, quote, repellent and morally bankrupt to consider breaking into Dumbledore's tomb to snatch the Elder Wand and disturb his slumber. That's something a villainous, vile person would do. Quote, you can never have done that, Harry. Still, he's racked by worry that he misstepped. Quote, the idea of Dumbledore's corpse frightened Harry much less than the possibility that he might have misunderstood the living Dumbledore's intentions. It's a great thought. Yeah. He felt that he was still groping in the dark. He had chosen his path, but he kept looking back. The anger at Dumbledore for not better explaining himself while he was alive, the anger that dominated Harry's heart for so much of this book and that abated in the thrill of Harry's discoveries, now returns to him in waves. Ron, meanwhile, continues to wonder if Dumbledore is indeed dead. What, he asks, of the blue eye in the mirror? What of the doe? What of the sword? And Harry still has no answers for this, but there's one thing he knows. Quote, Dumbledore wouldn't come back as a ghost, said Harry. There was little about Dumbledore he was sure of now, but he knew that much. He would have gone on. Just as nearly headless Nick told Harry of Sirius and of all who are unafraid to face what death might bring. Their conversation halts when Fleur arrives to tell Harry that Griphook wants to speak. He's arrived at a decision. Though the goblins of Gringotts will consider it base treachery, I have decided to help you. That's great! says Harry. Griphook, thank you. We're really in return for payment. He wants Gryffindor's sword and not any other treasure to which he has no right, as he angrily says when Ron offers him something else from the vault instead. Griphook explains that, according to goblin history, Godric Gryffindor took the sword from its creator Ragnuk I, more in this legend in the seven. Uh Thus returning it to goblin ownership would, in Griphook's mind, be to right an ancient wrong. The sword is the price of my hire, he says. Take it or leave it. Harry, Ron, and Hermione excuse themselves to talk it over. 
Hermione, who actually paid attention (laughs) in History of Magic, notes that goblins have legitimate grievances regarding their treatment by wizards, but also that she's never heard that Gryffindor acquired the sword by theft. Still, quote, wizarding history often skates over what the wizards have done to other magical races, she says. Ron counters with a textbook, gotta hear both sides argument, noting that, quote, they've killed plenty of us. They fought dirty too. Ron's solution to the problem is surely right in line with the history of goblin-wizard relations. He suggests they agree to Griphook's deal, but tell him he can have the sword only after they get into the vault, and at which point they would switch the real sword for the fake one. This plan, besides being underhanded and morally despicable— Not great. Tough look for our guy here. (laughs) Very tough. Is super dumb. Quite dumb. Because, as Hermione explains, Griphook, quote, would know the difference better— then they would. He has the good grace to blush when Hermione shames him. <laughs> Harry's stuck. Uh. He knows Griphook would accept no other payment, but also that he can't let go of the sword, the only method they currently possess for slaying mm-hmm. horcruxes. They break into the vault to get the cup, but then can't destroy it or any other horcrux. What's the point of infiltrating Gringotts to begin with? Right. Harry also doesn't want to believe that the founder of his house, one of his heroes, would have done such a thing. Does it make a difference? Asked Hermione. Changes how I feel about it, said Harry, a subtle but nice reminder of his ever-present moral compass. An important reminder in light of the plan that Harry finally does land on. They'll promise the sword to Griphook after they get into the vault. But, in Harry's words, quote, we'll be careful to avoid telling him exactly when he can have it. Hermione assures Harry she'll keep her word. However, as she points out, quote, that could be years. These are desperate times, and unless our friends succeed in destroying the Horcruxes, the world will be a much different, much worse place. Still, while this plan upholds the letter of Group Hook's demand, it surely violates the spirit of it. Quote, I won't be lying, really, Harry says. A fascinating internal struggle unfolds with Harry, who so often compared himself to Voldemort, now comparing himself to Grindelwald and Dumbledore in his weak moments. Quote, Harry met her eyes with a mixture of defiance and shame. He remembered the words that had been engraved over the gateway to Nurmengard for the greater good. He pushed the idea away. What choice did they have? I don't like it, Hermione says. Nor do I much, Harry says. Ron, however, loves it. (laughs) And Griphook, once Harry presents the offer, quickly agrees. Quote, it was like planning to break into the ministry all over again. Griphook tells our friends about the Lestrange vault. As one of the most ancient pureblood families, their valuables are stored in the deepest levels of the bank, under the most robust protections, and we will soon see how robust they are. For more on Gringotts' protection, by the way, check out our restricted section on the bank, which was, I was shocked to discover when checking our documents in the very first episode of this podcast. (laughs) Pretty crazy. (gasps) My lord. (laughs) (sighs) Our friends, plus Grippy, spent hours together in the smallest bedroom at Shell Cottage, planning. One immediate problem, they think, is that they only have enough polyjuice left for one of them. But Harry says that'll be enough. He and Ron, will soon see, will conceal themselves in other ways, while Hermione will use the potion to impersonate Bellatrix, whose wand, recall, they have. No one else in the house asks what they're planning with Griphook, yet. But Harry, quote, often felt Bill's eyes on the three of them at the table, thoughtful, concerned. As the days go by, Harry realizes how little he likes Griphook, who carries a very clear and present bloodlust for hurting lesser creatures and wizards, too. He's praying that they have to hurt some wizards to get into the vault. And Harry knows the burden that Griphook's nasty presence has put on Floor in particular. He apologizes to her in a tender moment for leaving them no choice. 
but she tells him that she's never forgotten what he did for her sister in the lake during the second task. And Harry, despite his distaste for the goblin, knows that he must work hard to keep Grip Hook happy, making sure the goblin can have the comfort of a bed and the privacy of one of the guest rooms while Harry, Ron, and Dean sleep in the living room instead. These days, tense though they may be, are still the calm before the storm, full of small scenes of domesticity and friendship. Luna telling Dean about her father's snork at corn. <laughs> Hermione insisting <laughs> that it was an erumpin horn, which she notes went on to detonate. <laughs> Mr. Ollivander, gracious and grateful, telling Luna in a truly lovely moment that she was a, quote, inexpressible comfort to him. And thanking Fleur as well for her care before leaving for Auntie Muriel's. And Fleur showing a warmth that reminds Harry of Molly. And best of all, Remus Lupin, arriving unannounced with wonderful news. It's a boy, he cries out. We've named him Ted after Dora's father. Tonks has had the baby. And Hermione and Fleur shriek with joy. Quote, this is, this is iconic. Ron said, blimey, a baby. As if he had never heard of such a thing before. <laughs> this is wonderful news, but also heartbreakingly bittersweet considering the fate that we know awaits Lupin and Tonks at the Battle of Hogwarts. But here and now, there's bliss and reconciliation. Lupin, who mere chapters ago was so afraid of what his condition might mean for his wife and unborn child that he sought to abandon them to go on the road with Harry, now looks, quote, dazed by his own happiness. Harry wondered, when hearing Lupin on Potter Watch, if all had been forgiven. And now he knows for sure. Lupin walks over to Harry and embraces him like a brother. Quote, the scene in the basement of Grimaud Place might never have happened. You'll be godfather, he said as he released Harry. Me, stammered Harry. You, yes, of course. Dora quite agrees, no one better. I, yeah, blimey. It's just, just such a wonderful moment. Harry and Lupin's shattering row seemed at the time as if it left a potentially irreparable rend in the relationship that had meant so much to both of them. For Lupin, a reconnection to the defining friendships of his life, an acceptance for what he had to offer rather than rejection for what he was. For Harry, a bridge to his father and a guide to finding his courage and the power of the strength within. Harry regretted what he said to Lupin, but that decision, though made with haste, ultimately led Lupin to reflect. Just as Harry has often benefited from his friends speaking hard truths to him, so Lupin did from Harry doing the same. Now time, clarity, a recommitment to his family, and the birth of his child have healed those wounds. Quote, Harry felt overwhelmed, astonished, delighted. His own godfather, Sirius Black, was one of the most beloved and impactful figures in his life. This is an inexpressible honor for him. And it's an inexpressible comfort for readers on the eve of Lupin's death to see him so unencumbered for once so joyful and free. Bill fetches some wine, and as Lupin smiles widely, talking of Teddy's already changing hair color, looking younger than Harry has ever seen him, transported and alive with life and love, they all drink to the health of Teddy Remus Lupin, quote, a great wizard in the making. Soon they're on another bottle of wine. From the book, Lupin's news seem to have taken them out of themselves. It's a reminder and a crucial one of what they're all working to protect. Quote, tidings of new life were exhilarating. Lupin says farewell when Beaming promises to return in a few days with some pictures. As the night winds down, Bill pulls Harry aside for a chat. Harry, you're planning something with Griphook. What gave it away, my guy? Was it the hours and days Harry, Ron, and Hermione spent alone in a room with Griphook obviously planning something? Could it have been that? I know goblins, said Bill. 
I worked for Gringotts ever since I left Hogwarts. As far as there can be friendship between wizards and goblins, I have goblin friends, or at least goblins I know well and like. Translation, some of my best friends are goblins, (laughs) says Bill Weasley. Anyway, Bill wants to warn Harry based on his long experience and deep friendships with certain goblins about dealing with goblins. Quote, if you've struck any kind of bargain with Kirkpook, and most particularly if that bargain involves treasure, you must be exceptionally careful. Goblin notions of ownership, payment, and repayment are not the same as human ones. Harry's unnerved, quote, as though a small snake had stirred inside him. Always the Horcrux clues there. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, Bill says to goblins, the true owner of an object is the object's creator, not the purchaser. Quote, all goblin-made objects are in goblin eyes rightfully theirs, he says. If something's bought, it's not owned, it's rented. Harry's ominous feeling grows. Bill's bottom line, be wary of promises made with goblins, especially involving treasure. Quote, it would be less dangerous to break into Gringotts than renege on a promise to a goblin. Harry thanks Bill for his counsel, but gives nothing away. He's gone too far down the road he chose to risk walking back or seeking another path. From the book, as he followed Bill back to the others, a wry thought came to him, born no doubt of the wine he had drunk. He seemed set on a course to become just as reckless a godfather to Teddy Lupin as Sirius Black had been to him. Man, quite an end note. (sighs) Incredible stretch of chapters. Jason, the manner of taking matters. Much also depends on the pod itself. In general, however, where a pod has been won, its allegiance will change. So please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about wand making. Each wand is the composite of its wood, its core, and the experience and nature of its owner, Rolling writes, through Ollivander's voice on Pottermore. She has also described wands as, quote, quasi-sentient, with their own feelings and personalities, strengths and weaknesses, and their component parts collaborate to produce such traits. I feel like we're quasi-sentient at this point. I think that's true. (laughs) The first is the wood. Only a minority of trees produce wood high quality enough to craft into a wand, though the presence of a bow chuckle curled up among the leaves is a good hint because Pickett and his friends inhabit only wand-capable trees. Amazing. Still on Pottermore, Ollivander discusses more than three dozen different kinds of wand wood, ranging alphabetically from ash to hornbeam to redwood to you. Each possesses its own tendencies, and for the character with known wand types, they often explain some part of those characters' magic. Holly, for instance, is, quote, traditionally considered protective and often chooses witches and wizards who are, quote, engaged in some dangerous and often spiritual quest. Sounds a lot like Harry, owner of a holly wand himself. Hawthorne wands are often strange and contradictory. I have a Hawthorne wand picked me. A Hawthorne wand picked me. It did. Very tough look for me. (laughs) And attach themselves to like-minded people, Olivander writes. I have generally observed that the Hawthorne wand seems most at home with a conflicted nature. Or with a witcher wizard passing through a period of turmoil. Oh, my God. I feel so seen by Ollivander. <laughs> so apt. Sounds a lot like Draco. A Yuan, quote, never chooses either a mediocre or timid owner and has a reputation for working quite well in dueling and the casting of curses. Sounds a lot like Voldemort. And wands made of elder are the rarest of all. And while they contain powerful magic... Quote, it takes a remarkable wizard to keep the Elder Wand for any length of time. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. A similar variety appears with wand cores, the important magic-granting piece embedded inside the wood container. 
The list of known wand cores includes, in addition to the big three of unicorn hair, phoenix feather, and dragon heartstring, a vast collection of hairs and horns pulled from magical creatures and plants. Vestral tail hair, like the elder wand, basilisk horns, like in Salazar Slytherin's wand. Vila hair, like in Fuller's wand. Uh-huh. <laughs> Kelpie hair. <laughs> Measle whiskers. And Dittany stalks. And that's just in Europe. Bill just overflowing with Vila hair. <laughs> <laughs> Picking him out of his teeth. Oh, In North America, we know of wand cores that come from horned serpents, jackalopes, thunderbirds, wampus cats, white river monsters, dog-headed monsters called Rougarou, and dragon-like creatures called Snallygasters. It seems that a wand core can come from basically any magical creature, and until recently, customers would present wand makers with any such substance they desired. But then, Mr. Ollivander became a famous wand maker and changed the game entirely. He disrupted the market. <laughs> disrupted the space. <laughs> Garrick Ollivander was the latest in a long line of wand makers. He believed that his family, whose surname means he who owns the olive wand, hmm. arrived in Britain during the Roman conquest thousands of years earlier and set up shop to sell wands to ancient British It's wizards. shocking to hear his first name, by the way. Yeah, He's one of like the, these people where it's like his first name I never is Mr. Hear I never want to hear it. It's like a teacher. <laughs> when you hear your, te- like in second grade or third grade, when you hear your teacher's first name, you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? No. When it came time to take over the family business, after years of watching his father wrestle with subpar materials, Oof. He determined to work only with the most reliable and powerfully magical cores and engaged in ample experimentation to see which were best. Ultimately, he settled on what he called the Supreme Three. Unicorn hair, phoenix feather, and dragon heartstring. This decision proved a bit of a challenge for Ollivander because they're more rare and expensive than, say, an old Vila hair. Someone, (laughs) someone might have lying around in vast clumps. It also made the whole wand selection process more time-consuming because instead of coming pre-matched, now wizards and witches needed to find the wand that would choose them, best out of an entire store full of them. But it paid off in multiples, rolling rights. While there was initially substantial resistance to this revolutionary way of crafting wands, it swiftly became clear that Ollivander wands were infinitely superior to anything that had come before. His methods of locating wand woods and coarse substances, marrying them together and matching them to ideal owners are all jealously guarded secrets that were coveted by rival wand makers. His logistics, unbelievable. Just an incredible look supply for chain. Garrick. Great supply chain <laughs> management by Garrick. <laughs> Beyond the wood core, other factors affect wand performance and fit too. Length matters. Yes. No matter what they tell you. No matter, matter what they tell you, folks. <laughs> no matter what anybody says. <laughs> Length matters. And though a general rule has it that longer wands tend to favor taller people, length can also affect spell work, as shorter wands can yield better results with, quote, elegant and refined spellcasting, while longer wands work better for dramatic displays of magic. And whether a wand is flexible or rigid matters, too, as it expresses a measure of adaptability on the part of both possessor and the type of magic itself. I can't believe wand lore includes literally a shower versus grower sentence. Incredible. It's the motion of the spell casting. It's no surprise that we learn in this section of Hallows, for instance, that Bellatrix's wand is completely unyielding, mm-hmm. while Draco's is springy, much like their respective personalities. 
And finally, all these disparate parts must contend with their own interrelated fits even before they reach the intended witch or wizard. Some woods don't match well with certain cores, for instance, and some lengths work better with some degree of flexibility than others. One in particular stands out here, coming from Ollivander's notes about Hollywood on Pottermore. Quote, holly is one of those woods that varies most dramatically in performance depending on the wand core. And it is a notoriously difficult wood to team with phoenix feather as the wood's volatility conflicts strangely with the phoenix detachment. In the unusual event of such a pairing, finding its ideal match, however, nothing and nobody should stand in their way. Hello. Wow. Indeed, nothing and nobody could stand in Harry's way. The wand chooses the wizard, yes, and learns from the works with him as the two grow together. But Harry's beloved wand had plenty of personality on its own already. Great look for our guy, Harry And a good Potter size. There. Yeah. Fits bad. well in the hand. Jimmy <laughs> I, likes it. I want a wampus cat core for my wand. <laughs> that sounds great to me. It's wonderful. Incredible. Jason. Yes. I welcome death. But my death will not bring you what you seek. There is so much you do not understand. Perhaps these nuggets will help. Let's split them. If not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallows, chapters 23 through 25. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one. Shell Cottage contains more massive clues about the identity of the Ravenclaw Horcrux. When Fleur gives the tiara to Ollivander, asking her to return it to Muriel, Luna says, Daddy made a tiara. Reinforcing the connection in our mind between a tiara, which again Harry has seen, and held in the Room of Requirement, and an object associated with Rowena Ravenclaw. Luna even names the thing here, saying, quote, he's trying to recreate the lost diadem of Ravenclaw. Luna, for the win. Always. Number two. There's a great J.K. Rowling quote about the moment when Harry takes possession of the Elder Wand by taking Draco's wand from him at Malfoy Manor. In a 2007 Today Show interview, Rowling said that her American editor suggested the moment should be more dramatic. Her response, quote, but no, I really wanted very consciously for the history of the wizarding world to hinge on this moment where two teenage boys have a physical fight. They don't even do it by magic. That sort of puts all of Voldemort's and Dumbledore's grandiose plans in their place, doesn't it? You just can't plan that well. Something can go wrong and it went wrong. It went wrong because Harry managed to pull this wand out of Draco's grip. Number three. When talking about the ownership of the sword, Ron says that the notion that Gryffindor stole it is, quote, one of those goblin stories. He's right. As we discussed in the recent RS on the sword, in our third Hallows pod, Ragnuk I grew so enamored of his creation that he made up a story about Godric stealing it and never corrected the record, allowing the legend to be passed down for centuries. Number four. If the moment when Harry thinks that Voldemort will soon have flown far enough from Nurmengard to apparate back to Malfoy Manor led you to wonder what the confines of apparition are? Consider JKR's explanation on Twitter when asked why Newt took a boat to the U.S. in the first Fantastic Beast films rather than apparate. Quote, there's a limit to how far you can apparate. Intercontinental apparition is very dangerous. She followed up by saying that the odds of splinching would increase with range, and in a later FAQ on her site noted, quote, apparition becomes increasingly risky over long distances. As with most magic, much depends on the skill of the spellcaster. Apparition requires knowledge of the terrain to which one is moving or the ability to visualize it clearly. Cross-continental apparition would almost certainly result in severe injury or death. Number five, a couple of fantastic beasts, the crimes of Grindelwald notes. Number one, Nurmengard, where Voldemort speaks to and then murders Grindelwald, is the location that we see at the end of Beast 2 when Grindelwald tells Critton's his real name. Looks pretty nice there. <laughs> Number two, 
There's no mention in any of Harry's visions of Grindelwald of one of his eyes looking odd. Is this a change for the Beast films? And what could the whitish-blue right eye mean? Number six. If you thought Malfoy Manor's role in this story was over after our friends escape, you have not appropriately explored the wideness of the canon. Spoiler warning, obviously, if you have not read Cursed Child. Delphi, the secret child that Voldemort and Bellatrix had, was born in Malfoy Manor. Wow. Incredible. Number seven. Harry, of course, becomes godfather soon before the actual parents die, tragically paralleling his own godfather's path. At least Harry didn't end up in Azkaban afterwards. Mal, Binge Mode is a free podcast, and Binge Mode has come to honor one of Harry Potter's fiercest friends. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Dobby! Just one of the best. Yeah. Truly one of the best characters in the entire series. And we'll say it just like Harry did. Here lies Dobby, a free elf. An inspiration. He saved Harry, Ron, Hermione, Lunadino, Lavender, and Griphook. And really, the world. He is a brave hero. He's mm-hmm. a fierce soldier, a loyal friend. He enabled Harry to disarm Draco, thereby playing a key role in Harry becoming master of the Elder Wand and ultimately winning in the end. Dobby's role is vast and expansive. And as we said earlier, but want to reinforce here, he embodied a classic fantasy ideal, proving that everyone deserves freedom and the right to choose and showing us how powerful our actions can be and what a difference each of us can make if we only dare to try. And now his watch has ended. We shall never see his like again. R.I.P. Dob. Well, friends, hopefully it cheered you up to have your podcast back. Muriel told Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, that she thought we'd stolen it. <laughs> we hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time when we will be concluding our Deathly Hallows Part 1 bundle by discussing the Deathly Hallows Part 1 film. Until then, remember, we want to do it properly, not by magic. I'm just gonna. T- I'm just gonna ask him. I'm just gonna ask him. Hold on, Mr. Olivander. Let's go, Ben. Hey, uh, how you feeling? I'm quite, quite weak. Yeah, man, you look very tough. Your skin's like paper thin. I see your bones poking out of your skin, man. You look really beat down. But listen, you'll be ready to move, right? 45 minutes to an hour, we say. Just going to move you as soon as you're feeling a little better. And in a couple minutes, move you to my Aunt Muriel's. Just wanted to kind of get these bedrooms and then the other bedroom. The one with Grip Hook. We'll move him out of there as well. He's going to go with you. You know, just Fleur and I like uh, like to switch it up sometimes. Okay, so. uh, I don't I don't think I do. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's all right. Just have some water and stuff and we'll get you out of here. I'll be fine. Don't worry about it.